Well, hello, people. Good to see you all. Uh, I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, maybe a happy Halloween, if that's your thing. Uh, speaking of Halloween, I saw a video the other day of a couple kids uh, dressed up. Uh, their parents posted the video and said, my kids won Halloween. Um, I don't know if that's true, but, but let's watch. kind of cute, huh? Uh, 2005, David Foster Wallace, he's uh, a writer. He began a commencement speech at Kenyon College, uh, and he did so by telling a modern parable. It went like this. He said, two young fish were swimming in water, and they happened to meet an older fish swimming the other way. Older fish nods at the younger fish and says, morning, boys, how's the water? Two young fish swim away. They're going, going, going until one turns the other and says, what the heck is water? Why am I telling you this? Because tonight we're talking about sex. And in many ways, sex in our culture has become almost as second nature to us as water is to a fish. Now by that, I don't mean that we're all having sex. Rather, what I mean is that sex in all of its varying forms, sex as a, a subject in our culture, it's almost unavoidable. It's constantly in front of us, so much so that we, we sometimes we forget that it's even there. So have you realized that? See, our culture has become so hypersexualized that most of us, most of us see a video of two little kids dancing and don't think twice about the fact that they're dressed up as Chippendales. Now, I'm not trying to throw you under the bus. I laugh when I see that video, probably because I have kiddos, but kiddos, kid, Kiddos, something like that. I laugh too is what I'm trying to say. I'm not throwing you under the bus, I laugh too. The point that I'm trying to make with the video, the point that I'm trying to make by following up with a parable, I'm, I'm simply trying to say that, that sex in our culture has become second nature to us. See, we sexualize everything from, from kids to chewing gum to automobiles. Sex in many ways, it's become the water that we swim in, it's become the air that we breathe. And because sex is everywhere, that means it's on most of our minds. And it's on most of our minds a lot of the time, sometimes explicitly and intentionally, other times more subtly. And because of that, we think that it's really important as Christians to have a frank, honest discussion about it. So here's what I wanna do tonight. First. I wanna talk a little bit about what our culture portrays about sex. What does our culture say to us about sex? Then I wanna say, I wanna ask, I wanna wrestle with, what does the Bible say? See, my guess is that most of us know what the Bible says not to do with regard to sex, but do we know what God says to do with sex? How are we as Christians supposed to use our sexuality? Finally, I want to talk about what all of this means for us. So I should say this up front, if this is your first time at Veritas, I'm so sorry. Um, tonight, admittedly, uh, it's, it's going to feel heavy. 
right? I, there's no way around it. It's, it's going to be heavy. Um, that's what we're into. That's what we're here for. Uh, please come back, though. It's not always like this. Um, I should also say up front, uh, to those of you that are anxious to talk about sex, maybe even excited, I know that I won't say everything that needs to be said about sex. But my hope is that tonight we all leave, myself included, with a, a few things to think about, with a few more things to talk about with regard to sex, okay? All right. So, what does our culture say about sex? Ben Stewart in his book, Single, Dating, Engaged, Married, we've been talking about it, we've been selling it, I think we still have a few copies. He's helpful on this point. He, he summarizes, he points out three primary things that our culture says about sex. First, he says that our culture tells us that sex is casual. Sex is casual. Have you guys, um, have you ridden a bird scooter yet? Right? Um, I, I need to admit, I rode a bird scooter for the first time last week, uh, and I should also admit uh, that on my 20-minute joyride around campus, I was that guy. I tried to pull my phone out. Um, I didn't crash, but I almost did. Uh, I know I'm the guy that everyone hates, right? But it was fun. Regardless, though, of whether you've ridden a bird scooter or not, the process is pretty simple, right? How, how does it work? You find a scooter you want to ride, and then you ride around it. You use it for as long as you'd like, and then when you're done, you just leave it there. Find it, use it, walk away from it. Sounds a lot like sex in our culture, doesn't it? You see, see, for many in our culture, sex has become as casual as riding a scooter around town. It's fun, it's something that feels good, it's biology, everyone's doing it, no pun intended. It's not a big deal. Funny, huh? You like that, Kate? <laughs> Just keep laughing, we need those. It's no big deal, right? It's casual. The only thing that matters with regard to sex is consent. Casual sex, it's why dating apps like Tinder, Bumble, Grindr have become so prolific. Tinder alone boasts that it has more than 50 million active users, many of which use the simple flick of a finger to find a partner to have sex with whenever they want. I was reading an article the other day called Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse, uh, and, and in this article, men and women, they're, they're interviewed. They're in their 20s. They're interviewed. They're asked about sex and their use of, of these kinds of, of dating apps like Tinder. And, and one guy, John, he says this. He says, sex has become so easy. It's become so casual. This is what he's telling the, the interviewer. I can go on my phone right now, and no doubt I can find someone I can have sex with this evening, probably before midnight. Another guy boasts, brags, he says, I hooked up with three girls off of Tinder in the course of four nights, and I spent a total of $80 on all three girls. We talked for a total of 10 to 15 minutes, and then we hook up. Find it, use it, walk away from it. Sex in our culture is casual. And yet, at the same time, our culture says that sex is also essential. You see, while being no big deal, it's also simultaneously a huge deal. So if you aren't having sex, something is wrong with you. If you aren't willing to be physically intimate in a relationship, it's a deal breaker. Denying, suppressing, attempting to control your sexual appetite, it's repressive and odd, but even more, it's unhealthy and harmful. Abstaining from sex before marriage, it's ludicrous. You need that freedom. You need the liberation that sex gives. You need sex. That's why it's so glorified, right? 
That's why it's often so celebrated in our culture. I mean, I remember a few years ago here on campus, campus went nuts because a guy finally lost his virginity. His friends had been giving him a hard time. He was a virgin. And his friends had been giving him a hard time long enough, it became this huge deal so that when he finally had sex, T-shirts were made, stickers were passed out, Harpo's threw a party for this kid. Hashtag all over social media. Everyone knew about it. Sex is good for you. It's essential, our culture says. It's essential, it's casual, but it's also something that our culture tells us is primarily physical. Interview in the, the, the Rolling, or Rolling, not the Rolling Stones. Uh, someone put it in the Rolling Stone. I said it again. Someone put it in Rolling Stone. It's a magazine. Sex is just one piece of body touching another piece of body. Sex is just one piece of body touching another piece of body. Really? See, our hookup culture, it's so hijacked, our view of sex, that it's, it's cast as something purely recreational. It's an activity that, that we can enjoy apart from any hint of love or, or emotion or commitment. And this hookup culture, it's set the rules. Rules of hooking up, they're clear. And by hooking up, I mean anything, any level of physical involvement from, from making out to sex. But here are the rules. Don't expect a relationship. Don't expect commitment. Don't expect exclusivity. Don't get emotionally attached. See, as one person uh, in an interview with feminist author Naomi Wolf said, why get to know someone first? It's just a waste of time. You can hook up, get your needs met, and get on your way. You hear what she's saying, right? Sex is just a physical urge. There's nothing deeper. There's no emotion, no holistic longing to connect with another person, nothing. Hookups simply suffice to help us meet our needs. Alicia, she's a college student in a a book written by Laura Sessions called Unhooked. She agrees. She says, hookups are so scripted, you learn to turn everything off except your body. You learn to make yourself emotionally invulnerable. That's what the hookup culture is about. But the problem is that's incredibly difficult if we're honest. Article written by Kate Taylor in the New York Times a few years ago. She interviews several college students who say this. They admit that this is so difficult to do that getting drunk is the only way they can go through with having sex with people they don't like or don't even know. One student was particularly candid. She said though she had a regular hookup partner, she admitted that without alcohol, without alcohol, the two of them, her regular hookup partner, could not even sustain a conversation. She said, quote, we don't really like each other in person sober. We literally can't sit down and have coffee. But we can have sex. You see, maybe it's difficult to suppress our emotions and our longing for connection and sex because we were never meant to do so. Our culture, it portrays sex as casual, as essential, as primarily physical. That's the water that we're swimming in. That's, that's the air that we breathe. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we see it? How is that message, those messages, those ideas, how are they shaping your views of sex? What are they teaching you? 
How is our culture impressing upon you its idea of what sex is? How is it informing your thoughts about sex? A different question. What does God have to say about all of this? What does God have to say about that? What does the Bible have to say about sex? Many of us have grown up with, I would imagine, or have at least been taught a negative caricature of the Bible's view of sex. We've been taught that, that God is somehow anti-sex, that God is against sex, that sex is corrupt, sex is dirty, sex is demeaning. But you see, that couldn't be further from the biblical view of sex. God isn't anti-sex, he's pro-sex. In fact, God created sex. Sex was God's idea. And so in the opening pages of the Bible, God creates the man and the woman, and he commands them as husband and wife. What does he say to them? He says, be fruitful and multiply. Have sex. A few verses later, he calls everything that he's made, everything that he's said, very good. You see, men and women, I want us to see this. Men and women, you and me, were created with sexual desires. Your sexual desires aren't bad. They're good. God created us to have them. We see this in the very next chapter, Genesis 2, verse 24. It's the first explicit mention of sex in the Bible. It should be on the screen. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Think about that view of sexuality for a second. A man and a woman, a husband and a wife, total vulnerability, complete trust, nothing to hide, no shame. See, God brings together a man and a woman. He brings together a husband and wife to unite them to become one flesh in the context of marriage. And he not only, God not only allows sex in marriage, he commands it. Check out 1 Corinthians 7, three through five. Paul says this. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and only for a time. See, Paul is saying that part of the marital duty that a husband and a wife have with each other is to have sex regularly. The Bible tells a husband and a wife to have a lot of sex. And in case you think, well, yeah, we have to have sex in order to be fruitful and multiply, right? We have to have sex to to reproduce. Look at Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be ever intoxicated with her love. Song of Solomon 1, 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. That's the most PG verse in that entire book. You see, in the context of marriage, sex, the Bible says, is meant to be intoxicating. It's meant to be something enjoyed. It's meant to be something enjoyed far more than wine. Maybe you don't like wine. Insert something else there. 
God intends sex for good. He wants a husband and wife to delight in. He wants a husband and a wife to have joy in their sexuality. The Bible isn't shy about celebrating the passion and pleasure of our physical sexual experiences. But the Bible is also clear. Sex as God meant it to be is far more than physical intimacy. Of course, becoming one flesh, having sex, it necessarily requires something physical. You don't need me to tell you that. But the Bible also teaches us that it involves something far more. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain. That word knew in this case, it's a euphemism for sex. It's an English translation of the Hebrew verb yada, which means to know from experience. And in this case, it's a sexual euphemism, but yada isn't always related to sex. Psalm 139, verse 1, David says, You have searched me, Lord, in you know me. You yada me. Jeremiah twenty-two sixteen. 16, Josiah, he's one of Israel's godly kings. God describes him like this. Josiah, he defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, to yada me, declares the Lord? Why am I telling you this? Because when the Bible uses yada, it carries a deep, a connotation of a deep personal way of knowing someone. And so even more when we see yada used as a sexual euphemism, the point is to acknowledge that sex is meant to be a profound connection between two persons, body, mind, emotion, spirit. See, God in his goodness, in his wisdom, he designed sex to unite a husband and a wife in a powerful, in a mysterious way. That's why Paul quotes Genesis 2 the way he does in 1 Corinthians 6.16. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. See, Paul understood God's view of sex clearly. Sexual intimacy, it's far more than one piece of body touching another piece of body in some way. It's the intertwining of personhood. It involves, sex involves our entire being, and because of that, it's more powerful than we ever realize. See, despite the fact that our culture loves to tell us that sex is casual, there's no such thing as casual sex. Sex is powerful. It involves our entire being. God created it that way. That's why it's so difficult to break up with someone when you've been having sex with them. It's why it's hard when you, it's, it's why it's hard to stop when you've started experimenting sexually. It's why we can't keep our emotions from getting involved when we hook up without using drugs and alcohol. It's why many who hook up frequently are not. Report feelings of hurt, insecurity, disrespect, sadness, shame, regret. See, my guess in a room this size, some of you are feeling that way right now. Sex, it, it, it's powerful, both physically and emotionally, because God created it that way. And so when we use sex the way that God intends, God says that it brings life, it brings health, it brings oneness to a marriage relationship. 
But outside of that, outside of God's good intention, outside of God's boundaries, which are for our good, sex can bring destruction. The same mysterious life that brings, the same mysterious power that brings life to a relationship, life to a marriage, can quickly destroy. That's why Paul says, Paul warns, rather, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. He says, flee, flee from sexual immorality. You see that word sexual immorality here? It's the Greek word pornea, which is a, it comes from a word meaning to buy, to buy. And in, in the polyistic, polytheistic literature of Paul's day, that word, it was associated with buying a prostitute. Now, this is important because in ancient Rome and Greece, prostitutes were normally slaves. Sex slaves were often physically abused. And so the essence of pornea was treating another human being as a thing. And so what Paul's early readers would have understood when he told them in this verse to flee pornea is that for Christians, it's not acceptable to treat a person as an object. Put to death, Paul says in Colossians 3, your old life with its pornea, with its other sins. Your body is not meant for pornea, but for the Lord, 1 Corinthians 6.13. Now some have asked, okay, but, but what, if I, what if I love him or her? What's the harm in having consensual sex before marriage? If we're both okay with it, what's the big deal? Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this if you've been wondering what the will of God in your life is, this is part of it. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That word just means your holiness. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See Paul tells the Thessalonian church to abstain from sexual immorality. Why? So that no one he said would transgress and wrong his brother. What's the connection there? How does sexual activity outside of marriage wrong your brother? Ben Stewart says it better than me, so look at what he said. He said, if that woman is not your wife, or that man is not your husband, then he or she does not belong to you. That means they belong to someone else. So if you are having sex with them, hooking up with them. You are taking something that belongs to a future mate. Their sexuality, their passion, their body belongs to the one who will promise to love them for all of their days. If I'm not willing to take on that responsibility, then I have no business trying to take on the benefits of their sexuality. In other words, the harm in consensual sex before marriage is that you can't guarantee that person is going to be your spouse. I know what you're thinking, but we're engaged. I know people that have broken up the day before, the day of, actually, of their wedding. You can't be sure that person is going to be your spouse. See, the Bible says that 
that you aren't ready to unite yourself physically with someone unless you're also willing to unite with that person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, legally in marriage. And so don't get naked and vulnerable in every area or or don't get naked and vulnerable with someone without becoming willing to be vulnerable in every area of your life because you've bound yourself to that person in marriage. See, Paul, according to him, hooking up with others outside of the context of marriage, it means crossing a boundary we weren't meant to cross. It means taking something that doesn't belong to us. So God tells us he created sex It's good, he created it to be a uniting act, he created it to be a bond between a husband and his wife. But if you you let me be frank for for a few minutes, as others have pointed out, we live in a culture where men and women are increasingly bonding not with a spouse, but with a screen. See, with the advances in internet technology, pornography now is more accessible than it's ever been. Five years ago, this is five years ago, imagine what it is now. The Huffington Post was reporting that porn sites receive more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Now, of course, this is something that both men and women struggle with, but data suggests that the average age a boy first encounters porn is between 9 and 11 years old. And that by that time that that boy is an adult, he's been viewing porn somewhat frequently for more than a decade. See, interestingly, studies are increasingly showing that our most important sex organ isn't what we'd expect. It's our brain. It's because when we watch pornography, our brains get overstimulated. And every time our brain is overstimulated like this, it's literally rewired to crave the sensation that we get as a result from watching or viewing pornography. And so our brain is rewired and and we need more and more of these sensations, more and more of these sexual experiences, more and more pornography. And of course, this has implications on our relationships. How? John Mayer uh, was interviewed by Playboy magazine several years ago. Maybe you've seen this, maybe not. But this is, this is what John Mayer said about how porn has affected his relationships. It's kind of intense, just be warned. John Mayer says, I'm a self-soother. The internet, DVR, Netflix, Twitter, all these things are moments in time throughout your day when you're able to soothe yourself. We have an autonomy of comfort and pleasure. By the way, pornography... It's a new synaptic pathway. You wake up in the morning, open a thumbnail page, and it leads to a Pandora's box of visuals. There have probably been days when I saw 300 naked women before I got out of bed. Interviewer, you seem very fond of pornography. John Mayer, when I watch porn, if it's not enough, I make up backstories in my mind. My biggest dream is to write pornography. Interviewer, masturbation for you is good as sex? Mayer, absolutely Because during sex, I'm just going to run a film strip. I'm still masturbating. That's what you do when you're 30, 31, 32. This is my problem now. Catch this. This is his problem now. Rather than meet someone new, I would rather go home and replay the amazing experiences I've already had. See, John Mayer, if you're wondering, isn't the only one. Time Magazine reports in 2016 that many men who frequently watch porn are simply unable to experience a sexual response with a real person, with a real live 
woman. They're only able to respond to pornography. In fact, many go so far as to say they prefer, like John Mayer, watching porn instead. Looking at a screen is easier than connecting with a real person. You see, but what people are starting to realize is that when these men married, they're shocked to discover that porn has destroyed their ability to relate to their spouse, especially sexually. It's trained them to objectify the opposite sex. They've lost the ability to connect and relate to a woman as a full person. And so God tells us that sex within his boundaries, it brings life, it brings health. But outside of those boundaries, it brings havoc and destruction. See, I talk to guys all the time who tell me, Kyle, pornography is literally destroying my life. Women too. Women too. One of the reasons that pornography use among women is on the rise is because they're watching it to figure out what men want. So it's not so much about pleasure, although that's there, but it's more so to know what to do for men so that men will find them attractive. That's heartbreaking. And it's a complete distortion of God's intent for sex. I know this is heavy, but I'm going to take a second and speak, speak briefly about, about another issue that we don't often talk about in this context, and that's sexual assault. Why? Well, first, because as I've been reading more and more about this, between studies are suggesting that between 20 and 25% of all college women in the United States experience attempted or complete rape during their college career. These are just the cases that we know about. Many, many go unreported. More importantly, though, I'm bringing it up because 30% of the questions that you guys submitted in our Instagram survey, 30% were first-person first questions about how do I heal from sexual assault? 30%. Not from people out there, from people right here in this room. See, if it hasn't happened to you, Someone you know has been affected by it. I had a close friend in college, a Christian. She was raped after a party. I will never forget the morning that she told me. If you're here tonight and you've been sexually assaulted, I'm so sorry. That's not okay. It's not your fault. Someone somewhere has probably told you that it is, but it's not your fault. I know that the pain that you feel is often unbearable, but I want you to know that there is healing and there is justice in Jesus. Please know, I know I'm not saying enough, but please know that our staff team, we're here for you. We wanna listen, we wanna cry with you, we wanna offer, we wanna help, encouragement, however we can. If you feel comfortable enough, please, please, please come talk to us. I'm gonna take a second and I'm gonna speak specifically to men because I am one and I feel like I should say this. See, when it comes to women, some of you are here tonight at Veritas and you aren't sure about Jesus, but you are sure about that cute girl sitting a few rows away from you. You're slightly interested in Jesus because you're very interested in her. I get that, I've been there, I know what that's like. My hope, though, is that over time, your main interest shifts away from the girl. Your main interest 
shifts away from the girl and towards Jesus. Some of you, though, guys, are here, and I know that you're struggling deeply, deeply with your sexual sin. You see your sin. You see the darkness. You see the awful thoughts inside of you, your actions that you're doing, and you hate it about yourself. But that's why you're here. You want to own that. You, you know that you need to own that, and you want to find healing. I'm glad you're here, because that healing is only found in Jesus. Some of you, though, some of you, maybe, some of you in this room, men, are living in self-deception. You're hiding your sexual sin. You're content with those dark thoughts. You're using Christianity as a cover to manipulate and use women to satisfy your sexual desires and to pacify your insecurities of being alone. If that's you, if you're here tonight as a man and you don't have any interest in Jesus, but instead you're here at Veritas to pray on women, I hate that I have to say this, but please don't come back. See, if you're using Christianity as a cover to use, to manipulate, to ultimately assault women, you are destroying what God is trying to build in this community. Please don't come back until you're willing to acknowledge that what you're doing is terribly wrong and you need help. What does all of this, how do you transition out of that? What does all of this mean for us? See, because we live in such a hyper-sexualized culture, if you and I are going to be faithful to God's call on our life, if we're going to be faithful to God and his design for sex, then it's going to require us to fight. Several years ago, I watched a documentary, um, Grizzly Man. Maybe you've seen it. It follows the life of a man named Timothy Treadwell. Treadwell was a, um, he was a bear enthusiast who gained national notoriety um, by, by earning trust with wild bears, right? So much so that you see this in the documentary that, that he's able to approach them, he's able to walk up to them. In some cases, he's even petting them. And it's, it's pretty unbelievable until the day that a bear mauls him and kills him and eats him. Not kidding. It's a tragic ending to his story. See, we often ask questions like, how far is too far? What are the physical boundaries in a relationship? We love, I say we, we love to toe the line. But when it comes to sexual sin, I want us to know that if we get too close, it can quickly devour us and the people that we're involving in it. And so as Christians, we have to push back. We have to push back against our culture's view of sex. We have to fight, and we have to continue to fight against the temptation to succumb to sexual immorality. The author of Hebrews 12, verse uh, 4, he writes this. He says, in your struggle against sin, have you not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood? See, ask yourself, how much... How much are you willing to fight against sexual sin in your life? Are you willing to do so to the point of shedding your own blood? See, how are you, how are you fighting your struggle, maybe even your addiction to pornography? Are you talking to someone about it? If not, find someone. 
Are you in a small group? If not, join one. Or find a, a small group of people to help hold you accountable. Join one of our confidential sex, sexual integrity groups that we have at Veritas. If you're not sure what that is, come talk to one of us after. Maybe for you it means stop watching that show with that nudity. Maybe it means getting an internet filter on your phone or your computer. Maybe it means deleting apps that, that take you to bad places. How much are you willing to fight your sin? Some of you are here tonight and you're messing around or you're having sex because you think that it's going to make your boyfriend or your girlfriend love you more. It won't. It won't. In all likelihood, it will really damage, if not ultimately, destroy your relationship. How much are you willing to fight your sin? How much are you willing to fight against your sexual sin in your life? Some of us have bought into the cultural myths of sex because we feel so alone. I just want to be known. And so you hook up to get a date to a party. You hook up to get some attention. You hook up because it feels good. How much are you willing? How much are we willing to fight our sin? See, the problem with our sin, it's not, it's not out there. It starts right here. Our struggle with sin, our struggle with sexual sin, it's not primarily a struggle with the environment with, that we live in. It's not primarily a struggle with the people that we're around. No, the dark and needy condition of our heart is the problem. Our sin is always a heart problem. Of course, God wants us to work hard to expel from our lives the distorted views of sexuality that we have, but are we first willing to ask and let Jesus change our hearts? See, how much are you willing to fight against your sin? Know this, your fight, that fight, it's not going to be easy. In fact, it might be the hardest fight of your entire life. I promise you it's worth it. I promise you it's worth it. This music team comes up. Some of you here tonight, you need to realize with fresh clarity that, that sexual immorality really is a big deal. It's sin. God hates it. He wants you to admit it. He wants you to repent of it. He wants you to turn to Jesus. Many of you, though, if you're like me when I was in college, are sitting there thinking to yourself, but Kyle, I've already gone too far. I've failed too many times. I've messed up too much. You're sitting there, and you feel broken, and you feel damaged, and you feel incomplete. You feel dirty. You feel unusable. You feel unworthy, alone. You're overwhelmed with shame and guilt. You feel unlovable. You feel undesirable to God. You feel despair. You're sitting there and you're wondering, is there any hope left for me? See, hear me say this. Don't believe the lie that Satan is feeding you that it's too late. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You 
you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. You know, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't believe for a second that you sin too much to be loved and accepted by God. See, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. It's not too late for you. See, Jesus is in the business of newness, continual, expanding newness, healing, restoration, peace. That power that raised Jesus from the grave to conquer sin and death is the same power that God uses to wash away your sexual sin and shame. And in doing so, he promises to make you new. See, your darkness, it's not too dark for God. In Jesus, there is forgiveness and redemption and hope. Put your faith in him, and he promises to wash you clean. 